So, uh, Inez spoke about uh, choice, uh, making choices, wise choices, forks in the road, and um, using our our wisdom to navigate choice. And uh, I'm kind of speaking about choicelessness. But this is not like some passive-aggressive debate <laughs> happening here, where, <clears throat> like, all right, Inez said choice, now I say no choice. And, <laughs> and uh, we could have switched, you know, topics, right? But this is the kind of nuance of practice, that it is something in our heart longs for it to just march to the beat of one drum, but it's like the the path is is almost always two. It's almost always two. And so a story about how how practice can unfold. Um, you come to this path, and maybe it feels like an accident, or maybe like uh, a kind of miracle and but for whatever reason for whatever constellation of causes and conditions you find yourself encountering the territory of your own heart and mind and we sit down and for almost everyone it's a little bit startling something in us is a little, you know, just startled by kind of what it's like to be human. And um, and it just um, creates this, this sense, maybe we even got to practice with the sense of, you know, our, something's missing, life isn't totally working how I expected, or I got what I wanted, but what I got wasn't what I thought I was getting. The ways that that, uh, wanting is always different from getting. But there's something maybe out of joint. And we can find it rather remarkable that being just sitting around surrounded by kind people can be very unpleasant. Yeah. It's like a little bit of a revelation, you know. And uh and so it creates this kind of sense with this framework that we adopt where it's like, okay, I've got some it shouldn't be so hard. Or, and I've got some problems. I've got habits that cause real problems. And now my job is to kind of be the project manager as I kind of excavate and clean out and clear out these, um, these energies, habits. And so we kind of get to work the way we know how to get to work. And that usually involves a good deal of kind of willfulness and force and effort. And um, 
we start to kind of pour our life energy into the project of self-rehabilitation. Philosopher Nietzsche says, a living being wants above all else to release its strength. Life itself is the will to power. Animals strive instinctively for an optimal combination of conditions which allow them to expend all their energy and achieve their maximum feeling of power. I remember reading that back in college and uh, and now here on this path that is both about effort, about choice, but also very much about Uh, surrender. And so we get the sense from from practice that it's like, okay, I'm going to kind of muscle my way into the path. I'm going to muscle my way into concentration, into insight, into love. And you hear teachings on virya, the the word virya, energetic vigor, kind of like, uh, um, yeah, sort of like heart really move towards the dharma. We we sort of like engage intensively to hearing these teachings on virya, which are emphasized in the canon, and then you kind of just double down and it provides cover for the level of willfulness. And you hear about uh, kind of uh, sitting for hours without moving or practicing through the night or these kind of gestures of renunciation and kind of longing they seem to express a kind of longing for the Dharma, and sometimes they do. But the way the mind, this part of the mind, takes that in is it's more cover for willfulness. And it's it's a beautiful thing to make wise effort. In fact, it's kind of necessary that we're at some point on this path, we have to be willing to invest rather dramatically. Um, But we want to be very cautious of um, what animates that effort. And so the sense of, of willfulness, the sense of willfulness Matthew, this meditator with these problems, and this practice, striving towards some better self that always feels a little bit out of reach or something. That whole framework kind of arises out of some confusion and compounds confusion. And for me, somewhere... Um, very early in my practice, virya and sakya ditti, self-view, 
virya and self-view got bound together. Yeah. Does this make sense? This the the sense of like the headquarters of effort, the manager, the kind of manager of this this project, this Dharma project, got like very just very tangled up, tangled up the effort and the self-view yoked together. And so we can find ourselves this sort of like, you know, flawed person needs to strive on with energy. And, um, and now in kind of looking back, I can see that in some of my striving, some of my willingness to, you know, practice in austere ways, some of it, some of it, it was a kind of tangle of, um, of Dhamma Chanda, a kind of longing for the Dharma, you know, and conceit. And they got kind of tangled together. And so in in my kind of effort was both like this very sincere wish, like may I know the Dharma, may I know it. May it inhabit my heart. And a lot of the kind of contraction of the, the sort of like, in a sense, starting with wrong view, starting with this very congealed sense of me, my problems, and the effort I must make to cure the self. But in the attempt to cure the self, there is the compounding of the self. It's just another species of selfing. And in that conceit, in that, uh, in that conceit, just a whole raft of pain becomes possible. The pain of idealism and comparing the self to some vision, the pain of comparing mind, comparing not merely to an ideal, but to you or you or you. And the kind of agony of that, no matter what verdict we come to, better than, worse than, equal to, the very gesture of fixating the sense of self and then matching it up like a transparency to see how it fits against something else, it's painful. Ajahn Sajito gave a talk about um, kind of programs, the habits, the habits uh, that um, can run our lives, the self-criticism program. He called them programs, self-criticism program, or the controlling program. He's talking about programs, programs, programs. And then he said... um, the meditator is a program. Yeah. The meditator is a program. It's like, wait, no, no, no. 
Now the meditator is the one who's like deconstructing all the programs, taking care of business. Meditator is a program. Okay. So we're asked to consider um, really who and what we take the meditator to be. Yeah. What the kind of archetype is in that. And what's the kind of image of um, image of like the meditator's headquarters? very deep assumptions um, that we make about this meditator, who I am, what my problems are, what happiness is, deep assumptions. And then we, we kind of lean on the willfulness, lean on the willfulness. But... Um, Yeah, we must all come to the end, to come to the recognition of the limitations of willfulness, the limitations of the the efforts, the virya that arises out of this kind of contraction. And so... Okay, I sort of laid out in a way another another kind of predicament almost. And what what is the alternative to that framework and that form of striving? Um, it's something like receptivity. Receptivity. is a very kind of uh, not a lot of choice in that. There's not a lot of self in that. There's this kind of like porous receptivity. Because in, in the doing, in the project, it allows us to fixate the sense of self, the problematic meditator. But in the receptivity, it's like the self is not really home base in that. Just open. Where is the self in that? heart mind open. In that openness, um, we're really not making a home anywhere. Maybe we feel at ease in our body, in the skin, but we're not making, we're not fixating any kind of sense of the headquarters. There's just this openness, this receptivity. And um, in practice, 
um, practice, the kind of basic attitude is one of um, showing up not so much to change life, but to be changed by it. So be changed by it. To sit here and be changed by life. And there's a certain kind of uh, faith that maybe we need to develop that this kind of receptivity, this form of surrender, that that life will not do us wrong, letting life flow through will not do us wrong. So, um, Dharma path is a kind of shift from a life of kind of acquisition and getting to a life of uh, of something like learning. Learning maybe becomes the kind of deep aspiration. And um, and to learn, we actually have to surrender a measure of our willfulness and become receptive, right? To become receptive. Something, Ajahn, Ajahn Chah's line, everything is teaching us. It's always always moved me. Everything is teaching us. It was, I heard that very early in practice. And it was so useful just to try as best I could to make life a kind of teacher, to be receptive and porous to the learning on offer. It doesn't mean liking it or it doesn't mean repeating everything we've done. It means open, learning. And so um, to talk about learning is to talk about receptivity. It's to talk about uh, everything is teaching us. There's a sense of like, okay, I'm willing to put my views on the line. I'm willing to update my sense of who I am, of what's important, of what my problems are. I'm willing to update beliefs. And this entails receptivity because we bring, we bring so much to the moment, so so a kind of raft of views, so many models of what we are, of what happiness is, of what life's about. And it feels like, um, it feels like to, to look out uh, from one's eyes is to see the world. But um, in a sense, we're really seeing our mind. And sometimes, sometimes there's a kind of 
I don't know. It feels like there's there's almost like a seam that opens in my view. And just like, and everything that was familiar is suddenly uh, very fresh. And, and, and I become like acutely conscious of um, sort of like uh, everything that, like the, the contingency of everything I perceive. It's, it, it's, it's not natural to see it just like this. It's a function of a million things, of my own history, of cultural history, of the sense organs, their capacities, limitations. And yet it feels like, no, it's just inarguable what, what we perceive but it's it's over determined by these models this, this line so, so long ago read from from this research team brain cognitive science team all thinking is wishful thinking yeah. okay what does that mean yeah all thinking is wishful thinking and uh, they're not Dharma people that I know of. They're neuroscience people. But, uh, but it reminded me a lot of what we talk about. Um, all thinking is wishful thinking in the sense that, that thinking and wanting are not strictly separable. Or um, the, the attempt to know is suffused by our motivations. What we want will shape what is perceived. And we see this in ways in our practice that um, it's like trying to be mindful, trying to be mindful, 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 but it's like, it feels like it's just a reiteration of the agitation. Yeah. It feels like what, what is, what is perceived is just, is just like another cycle of maybe the affective state that we're in, the wanting that we have. And so, um, what we want, what we want, maybe, is not so separate from what we we see, we perceive, and then it means we're not. It's not so simple just to be present, just to be present, because our motivations shape the view in profound ways. The Mula Sutta, the Buddha says, all things are rooted in desire. Things are rooted in desire. And there are a lot of ways to read that, to construe that. But w- one of the ways is what I'm pointing to here, that, that what, is, what is perceived, what is perceived is yoked to our desire, to our motivations. 
And so to begin interrogating our view entails a measure of receptivity, a willingness to be changed by the world, willingness to start to soften soften around some of those motivations, that energy that lurches forward or back or towards or away, to become receptive. And so in, in retreat, we're really getting to explore this kind of what happens to the view when the wanting changes, what happens to the view when the wanting changes, what happens to the world when the craving starts to settle, when we become receptive. Okay, life, sounds, sights, sensation, emotion, thought, okay. We become receptive. There's um, some of the the craving, the kind of thirst, the impulsivity starts to settle. What do we then perceive? In a way, the more the more craving there is, the more world there is. The more Um, more dense the perception of the world is, the more dense the perception of our existential situation is. The more craving, the more world, the more craving, the more me. And then we become maybe a little bit more receptive again. We stop exercising choice, choicefulness. We stop perceiving a set of options that we rank in preference order. Okay, I'm just open. the more craving the more world but the less craving maybe we say the more life the poignancy the vivid flowing richness of the sensory system just open And then we're we're seeing, okay, um, how is the world? How am I? When the agenda really becomes awareness rather than acquisition. Receptivity 
um, really doesn't have an agenda, you know, just to be receptive, doesn't have an agenda. And uh, we're actually taking a break from trying to solve our problems. And a part of our heart needs a break from that. But a lot happens when we take a break from solving our problems. This is uh, Krishnamurti. Uh, yeah, a journal from uh, after taking a walk in, uh, in Ojai. Why is it um, that we seem to be losing the highly vulnerable quality of sensitivity sensitivity to all the things about us, not only to our own problems and turmoils. To be actually sensitive, not about something, but just to be sensitive, to be vulnerable like that new leaf, which is born a few days ago to face storms, rain, darkness, and light. When we're vulnerable, we seem to get hurt. Being hurt, we withdraw into ourselves build a wall around ourselves, become hard, cruel. But when we're vulnerable without any ugly, brutal reactions, vulnerable to all the movements of one's own being, vulnerable to the world, so sensitive that there's no regret, no wounds, no self-imposed discipline, then there is the quality of measureless existence. Phrase just just to be sensitive. Maybe maybe a kind of um, synonym for mindfulness. Just to be sensitive. And I do appreciate the side, the more active, energetic, engaged side, uh, entailed by mindfulness but it needs to be counterbalanced by the non-doing side, the side that I'm representing today, just to be sensitive. That's a whole path in itself. And so we detect the kind of surges of willfulness and control and we just relax. The organ of receptivity is our body. It's our body. We just relax. We feel these kinds of zones of contraction, the impulsivity, the, the congealing, the sense of willfulness, the sense of the problematic meditator, the sense of the meditator's headquarters. We feel all of this as a kind of species of tension. We relax. We feel the, the kind of um, this little micro-tensions. It's not to get obsessional about having this perfectly relaxed body 
but we can actually like feel contraction in the musculature. We feel sense of self in the musculature. We feel the kind of urgency of willfulness in the musculature. We relax, become porous, become receptive. And the sense of self is a kind of kind of contraction, kind of way that the receptivity collapses to a certain point. Yeah, the receptivity collapses somewhere. And then we just sort of widen and open again. Ajahn Sajira said, you treat the skin as an organ. It is, right? But you treat it as an organ. And you like fill the awareness out. Now, the sensitivity is not selective. Sensitivity almost by definition, it's not selective. We don't get to sort out what comes in and what doesn't. We become more open and porous and and become sensitive to the pleasant, to the painful, to love and grief. And uh, in a way, our path begins not... Um, our path begins with a certain reformulating our relationship with the first noble truth, that there is dukkha, that there is suffering. And um, and we move from trying to kind of control and outsmart the first noble truth to comprehending and grieving the first noble truth. And on this path, there is a kind of um, sense of, um, yeah, that, that dukkha can be redeemed. It can be redeemed. Yeah. And the kind of redemption of suffering, the redemption of pain, has a formal name in Buddhist practice. We use the word uh, purification. Purification. And so, um, on on this path, we and for sure in retreat and in popular characterizations of meditation practice, there's a sense that um, the practice is about the the kind of peaks, the peaks, yeah, and then the kind of the valleys or this intrusion into practice. I was like, okay, let me get back to that peak or something. 
But um, the practice is not, it's genuinely not. I know you're not going to believe me, but the practice is not about the peaks. It's about the ascent and the peak and the descent and the valley. And along each juncture of that ride, and it is a ride, um, something different is learned and released. And, um, you know, of course it feels great to feel that ascent and you feel the momentum building and it's kind of like, mm, okay, something's happening. Finally, you know, like, okay, here it is. And then there's something, some kind of something meaningful, beautiful, still, insightful, the peak. And then, and it's good to know the Buddha was not excluding you when he said, you know, this is a path. Yeah. And then that kind of the horror of the descent and you just start to sense the whatever little amount of love I cobbled together, just crumbling, the mindfulness just decaying in real time and just like clawing back up. You know, it's like that, that is having equanimity with that is not for the faint of heart, you know. And then the, then the valley, the valley where it feels like, you know, there's absolutely no way this is meant to be, you know. And uh, it's so deep, the so deep, the sense of this doesn't belong because something, you know, just everything in us is kind of rebelling and trying to exert the kind of its peak willfulness in the face of the valley, which is another way of saying in the face of helplessness. This can't be helped, no matter how much I strive, effort, right now, it's so hard. And the kind of um, the humility and courage, the motivation to be more free that gets consolidated in those valleys is important. Yeah, just like grappling. Can I get a tiny bit freer with the sense of helplessness? just a tiny bit. Can I become receptive here on the the other side of my willfulness when I have seen the limitations of my willfulness? Can this moment soften rather than harden my heart? And so the descent and the valleys, they really, 
they really have one of two tastes. They taste like suffering or they taste like purification. And um, this receptivity includes the willingness to kind of absorb the body blow of samsara, the body blow of like this imperfect realm we inhabit. To absorb that blow, to let it blow through. And this hurts, but you can taste the relief in it too. You can taste the relief in it. Something is being softened. Shinzen Young. The taste of purification is hard to describe, but in essence, it's a kind of joy. Maybe in great pain, but there's a deep joy because you feel blockages being worked out each time you greet the pain with equanimity. You can feel how the energy in the pain is wearing away the separation between you and your spiritual source. You sense that holdings from the past are being ground up, digested, metabolized by the peristaltic vibratory movements of impermanence. The grinding and digesting is both painful and liberating at the same time. This is the taste of purification. We keep noticing the bracing in us, the bracing that both quarantines the pain, but amplifies the burden on the heart. Keep sensing that. Keep coming back to a sense of of open receptivity, willingness to be changed by life. We're surrendering to the flow of anicca, impermanence, anicca sweeping through, clearing us out. Usually the tradition associates purification with strength or courage or something like that. But um, for me, it's it's really come to be very closely associated with uh, with grief and love, that the feeling, the, the, the kind of sense of the um, impermanence softening us, imperfection softening us, the kind of the meeting of equanimity and imperfection often tastes like grief often tastes like grief, but um, is also never far from love. And it's okay, it's okay that the gestalt of the practice, that in the trenches of purification, it feels like something's being pulled beyond our grasp, we're losing something. There's some grieving kind of process that can happen. That's okay. It's part of how we grow. 
And, um, you know, in that, in that surrender, in that surrender, in that receptivity, in that openness, there's, there's this sense of like, okay, you know, the ego is just all out of moves. It's just all out of moves. And we open. And it may hurt, but it feels good. It feels true. It feels like, um, yeah, it feels like purification. And um, to be in this cauldron, to be in that cauldron, the willingness to be there, courage to be there, to be softened by pain, um, it um, tends to make certain habits of mind just seem less and less tenable. It makes hatred seem less and less tenable to actually be softened by the the pain purification and the kind of love left in the wake of purification is a it's a stable love very um, potent kind of love Leonard Cohen saying, uh, I greet you from the other side of sorrow and despair with a love so vast and shattered it will reach you everywhere. Yeah, we come to kind of... hmm. Uh, trust, trust um, some species of love that uh, for sure weathers grief, is informed by it, strengthened by it, not weakened. 